Well, if you return in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, and I'll be reading this evening from verses 19 to 25 of that chapter. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 25. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe." Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. This is God's word. Uh, I was a, a teenager in the uh, 1990s, which some of you might feel really old. Uh, some of you might feel like I'm really old, uh, but there we are. That's when I was a teenager. And I feel that that time was the peak of Disney films. I think they were the best during a few years during that time. So we had uh, Beauty and the Beast... Then we had um, Aladdin, and we had The Lion King, and I loved all of those films. And there was another one that I want to talk to you a little bit about. I'm going to speak about Galatians, but uh, The Little Mermaid. Uh, now, I, lo- I, um, I watched that because I had a younger sister <laughs> and had to keep her company. Uh, of course, it wasn't my favorite Disney film. Uh, But I remember it well enough uh, to share with you an illustration that will help us understand what Paul is talking about in this passage. Now, you may remember the story of the Little Mermaid. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing. Uh, But the Little Mermaid called Ariel makes a bargain with Ursula, the sea witch, where she exchanges her voice in order for her to be transformed into a human so that she could walk uh, on the land. But before she is transported onto the land, or transformed into a human, uh, we find out in the film that Ariel has a grotto in which she keeps loads of trinkets that kind of fall into the sea uh, that are trinkets from the land that humans use. 
And she has a friend, a seagull called Scuttle, who feels he is a bit of an expert in human trinkets. And one of the trinkets she asks him how uh, to use is a fork. And Scuttle tells Ariel that a fork is used by humans to comb their hair. And so when Ariel goes onto the land, uh, she meets this prince and she comes to dinner time. And at dinner, she picks up the fork and thinks, ah, finally, something I know what to do with and begins to comb her hair. And of course, everyone around the table looks at her like we would look at someone that would do that in our house in astonishment and disdain and with sniggers. She makes a complete fool of herself because she has been misinformed as to the purpose of the fork and so she uses it in the wrong way. Now I'm telling you this story because in this passage Paul is telling us why the law was given. And we are in danger of treating the law like Ariel treats the fork in The Little Mermaid. We are in danger of not understanding its purpose and can fall into the danger of misusing it. Now, of course, um, we can't use the law physically to brush our hair or anything like that, but we misuse it by either ignoring it because we think, well, it no longer applies, so the Old Testament can just be put aside, or we might read the law and follow it legalistically, which is what the false teachers in Galatia were trying to get the Galatians to do. What we're going to see is Paul's teaching on why the law was given so that we can understand the proper use of the law for us today. Now, when Paul speaks of the law here, he is specifically referring to the Old Testament regulations found in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, for those of you that are reading the Bible through in a year, you will be in some of those places right now. You may be, you may have just, in my case, uh, I'm in Numbers right now. I finished Leviticus, I'm in Numbers, and we've, we've gone through these laws and these regulations. And maybe some of you have been reading that and thinking, my goodness me, that is a slog. I have no idea really what I'm supposed to make of this. Well, hopefully, uh, this has come at a good time and we can see a little bit of what we're to make of it. But these laws are also, when Paul is talking about the law, applied in various ways throughout the Scriptures in places like Proverbs, for example, which is wisdom in, in applying the law, if you like. The law was the way of life for the people of God in the Old Testament. And if we misread Galatians as, this, as a letter, if we misunderstand what we've been reading so far, we may be thinking, well, the law is bad. The law is a bad thing. Because Paul seems to, if we are misreading him, Make the law sound like it's not good. But Paul never says in Galatians or anywhere that the law is bad. What is bad is trying to be saved by the works of the law. Or what is bad is placing yourself under the law, he says. But the law itself is not bad. As we read in Psalm 119, 
we saw that the law is something to be loved and meditated on, to gain understanding from, and so on. Paul has been arguing from chapters 1 to 3 in Galatians that the purpose of the law is not to make us right with God. We're made right with God through faith in God's promise, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so if the purpose of the law is not to make us right with God, what is the purpose of the law? Why was it given at all? And if you look at chapter 3 at the beginning of verse 19, Paul begins with that very question. Why then was the law given at all? And tonight we're going to see Paul answer that by giving us three important points about the law. We're going to see the function of the law, the failure of the law, and the fulfillment of the law. Its function, its failure, and its fulfillment. So, uh, first of all then, the function of the law. In verse 19, we read that the law was added. Do you see that there? It was added. This doesn't mean it was added to the promise to Abraham, but it was added to God's revelation for his people. It was something new, something that hadn't been given before. And it was added, it was revealed because of transgressions. Do you notice that in verse 19? It was added because of transgressions. It was given because of sin. What does this mean? Well, it means a number of things to do with the fact that we are sinners. What does the law do regarding sin? How does it function in the, because we are sinners? Well, let me give you four ways the law functions because of sin. First of all, the law is there to reveal sin. It shows us what is wrong. And in doing so, it shows us the, the character of God. It shows us his holiness. It shows us his love of people. It shows us how to be in relationship with him and so on. It, it reveals our sin. And it, secondly, it restrains our sin. It restrains sin. Now we see this in our own uh, time with our own laws in our land. We have laws for all sorts of uh, things that stop us or restrain us from doing wrong. Now, it doesn't stop us completely. We might break the law. Uh, we might uh, break the law uh, in our hearts, but it restrains sin. It holds it back. That's one of the purposes of, of law, isn't it? It doesn't stop it completely, but it restrains. Uh, thirdly, the law is there to punish sin. This shows us how sin leads to consequences, the ultimate consequence of which is death. Without a punishment for sin, we wouldn't take sin seriously. And we see this today. If, if you remove consequences from si of sin, then with regards to crime, well, then the crime goes up, doesn't it? If you, if you take that away. Uh, for example, on, on Thursday, we saw... Um, the dangers of things like assisted suicide and euthanasia, that if you remove the restraint and remove punishment, then the, the cases of that murder, which is what it is, begin to rise, you see? And then fourthly, the law is there to atone for sin, or rather, provides 
a way of atonement through the sacrificial system where the blood of bulls and goats would be sacrificed for the sins of the people. If you've just finished Leviticus, you'll see loads of blood. It's there for atonement, to be sacrificed for sin. And all of this was because of transgressions, you see? Because of our sin, we need God to reveal sin to us because our sin separates us from him. Because of our sin, we need to be restrained so that we're held back from destroying ourselves and the world around us because the natural bent of our sinful hearts is to live towards sin. Because of our sin, we deserve punishment so that justice is done. And so we need the threat of punishment. And because of our sin, we need atonement for the the punishment is death and we cannot stand at the judgment if we are guilty and so we need a sacrifice in our place for our sins. And so the law was given because of transgressions. Its function was to reveal, restrain, punish and atone. And this is good, isn't it? It is good. If God had not given the law then the people would not have known how to live for him. The natural inclination of our hearts is to go away from God, and so this revelation enables people to relate to him, which is why the people of God loved the law. They loved it because it enabled them to to know what God requires of them. It enabled them to know how to to, to get atonement for their sin. It showed people who have been freed from slavery in Egypt how to live as free people under the rule of a good and gracious Lord. However, as good as the law is, it also had a temporary function. Notice the next part of verse 19. Look at the, uh, what Paul says next. It was added because of transgressions until, so for a temporary time, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Now we've seen before in Galatians that the seed or the offspring is Jesus. And so the law was added until Jesus comes and he fulfills it all and sends us the Holy Spirit. Now we'll see more about that, what that temporary role does in verses 23 to 25. But for now, just make a note in your minds that the law had a temporary function. It does not function in the way it does to the Old Testament people for all time for God's people. It was until Jesus came. And then we see in verses 19 and into verse 20 that the law also was mediated through angels and then through Moses. Now, angels... Uh, were, were the ones to whom the law was first given to, to then give to Moses. We don't read about this in Exodus when the law was given, but we do read about it in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2, and Acts chapter 7 and verse 53. I'm not going to turn there now, uh, but if you're making notes, you can look at Hebrews 2 verse 2, Acts seven fifty-three, where the law was given to the angels who then gave it to Moses. But the point Paul is making is that it wasn't given to Moses directly from God in the same way that the promise to Abraham was. It was given third hand from God to angels to Moses. And this means that the law, as good as the law is, is inferior to the promise given to Abraham. 
Because the law, unlike the promise given to Abraham, was temporary, it was, and it was mediated. It's inferior. And for us today, the promise to Abraham is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, both of whom are direct revelations from God because they are God. And I think that's what Paul means in verse 20 when he says a mediator is more than one party. That is, the law was given to the angels and then to Moses, but God is one. In other words, direct revelation from God is better. And the law wasn't given directly, it was mediated, but the promise is given directly from God. We're going to hear Paul speak of the time before Jesus and the time after and the function of the law in both of those times, before and after Christ. But here we see that it was an addition, it was temporary, and it was mediated. And so what we have now with the fulfilled promise is better than the wonderful law we had before Jesus came. And we need to remember this because the temptation for the Galatians is to go back to the law. But Paul's saying, no, what we have now is, is far better. So we've seen the function of the law, a mediated, temporary measure given because of transgressions. Now before we move on, I just want to make something uh, uh, clear that is a cause for worship. It's worth pausing and reflecting on this point, that God has revealed himself to us. God has revealed himself to us. We are sinners in rebellion against God, and we deserve death and hell forever. But God, in his mercy, revealed himself to us. In the Old Testament, the law was good and lovely because it was the revelation of God when he could have just left us on our own. God's people had his revelation. And that's wonderful, isn't it? But even more today, we are not Old Testament people. We have the revelation of God through Jesus Christ. We have the word of God which the Spirit enlightens us to understand. God has revealed himself to us. He could have just left us to suffer the consequences of our sin, but he has revealed himself to us. And he, in his grace, restrains us, and he punishes, and he atones. That is great mercy. That is a cause for worship, isn't it? That he would do that for us. But next, after telling us what the law is for, we're going to see what it is not for. Secondly, we see the failure of the law. The big point in verses 21 to 22 is that the law fails to justify. The law fails to justify. It fails to make us right with God. So in verse 21, Paul goes back to a theme he's spoken of before, law and promise. Paul basically asks, does the law compete with the promise? Are they two ways uh, to be right with God? And he says, absolutely not. Is, are they opposed? No. They are two totally different things. If the law was given 
because of transgressions, can it, can it deal with our sin if we just stick to it, if we obey it, if we do what it says? Can we then be right with God? Well, absolutely not, Paul says. He says in verse 21, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. If there was a law that you could follow that could give you life, if there was something you could do, well then of course you can be made right by the law. But what's the problem with that? There isn't a law that you can follow, that you can do, that will make you right with God because we fail to follow the law. And so it fails to save us because we fail to keep it. We are lawbreakers, all of us. That's the point of verse 22. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin. To to be locked up means to be imprisoned or hemmed in. And we are imprisoned or under the control of sin. We're sinful naturally. We're born with a sin nature under the control of our sinful desires. And Scripture being what locks us up means it's God's Word, the Scriptures, which shows us that we are sinners and declares us as guilty. That's what the Scriptures do. We, we read the law, we read the Scriptures, and we, we see that we fail. We don't match up. Our sinful hearts cause us to do sinful things. And so we can't follow the law and be saved. And it's a good thing that Scripture does this because we realize then that we need a Savior. We need someone who will save us from our sins. We need to receive the promise of Jesus that was given to Abraham. Notice at the end of verse 22, that's why Scripture reveals our sin. But Scripture has locked everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So the law does fail to save, but the law then does show us a need of a Savior. Have you ever wondered, why didn't God send Jesus earlier? Why, why didn't Jesus just come straight after Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden? Well, I don't know the answer to that question. The Scripture does not reveal the answer to that question. But what we do know from the Scripture is this, that the period of the Old Testament enabled us to see, as one writer explains, that our sin is far more serious and human beings are far more helpless in the face of it than we care to realize. The law shows us how serious sin is and how utterly helpless we are to be right with God through following it. And that law still functions in the same way today in that it shows us that we are sinners. I mean, many people today think that they are really good people. Um, I meet with one particular um, unbeliever quite regularly And they are always telling me, and I think it's because they know I'm a pastor, that they they think of me as a priest. Uh, Because no no one ever seems to know what a pastor is. They always think of a, a vicar or a priest. They tell me how all the good things they've done that week, and all the good things they've done for charity, and all the the wonderful uh, acts of service they do in the world. 
Every single time I meet them, they tell me all of this. And those things are good. I'm not going to say to the person, well, you shouldn't be doing that. But they're telling me those things because they want me to tell them, well, you're, you're really good, you are. You, you, God is going to be really pleased. But when we read the law and understand the law, if you just read the Ten Commandments, you will see that we have all failed in every single one, haven't we? And then we read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus speaks of those commandments in such a, an even deeper way that, that reveals our hearts and we begin to realize we have no idea how sinful we are. We, however bad we think we are, it's worse, isn't it? And so we cannot be saved by just being right because we can never, by trying to do the right thing, deal with our sin. Are you aware that you are in great need of God's mercy? That you cannot save yourself by keeping the law or by doing any kind of good deeds. You need Jesus to save you from your sins. You cannot save yourself. You cannot expect to stand before God at the judgment, show him your tick list and say, look how good I am. Because on that day, our sin is revealed and you will realize that that tick list does not cut mustard at all. And if you can see by reading the scriptures that you are a sinner and you are in need of God's mercy, I would love to introduce you to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the one who has kept the law perfectly, who never failed and then died in our place for our sins and rose from the dead so that we can have forgiveness and new life when we put our faith in him. And it's to him that the law ultimately points. And so if you're here this evening and you do not know Christ, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, I urge you to do so today. The law shows us that sin is serious, that God will judge us for our sin. But it reveals Jesus to us, the once-for-all sacrifice of atonement. And that's the final point Paul really makes in verses 23 to 25, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. We saw in verse 19 that the law was a temporary measure added because of sin, but Paul goes into more detail in these verses on how the law worked in our lives. We read in verses 20, verse 23, before the coming of this faith. And he means the same thing as, as he did in verse 19 when he said, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. In other words, before Jesus has arrived and called us to put our faith in him. Before then, before Christ, verse 23, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. The same word used here, locked up, is used in verse 22. Scripture held us locked up under the control of sin. It showed us our sin and our guilt. But the law was also a revelation that kept us locked up under it for a time. But the locking up here is not a bad thing. Being locked up under sin 
Scripture doing that wasn't a bad thing. It revealed our sin. And here, it's not a bad thing. Verse 24 explains how we were held in custody, why this was good. So, this is what Paul means, the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The Greek word for guardian, uh, padagogos, was, is, a, is where we get the English word um, pedagogy, something like that. I can't pronounce it very well. But it means to teach children. It means uh, education of children. Now, in upper-class households in Roman times, a slave was entrusted with the care and discipline of children in the house, especially the heirs. So in that household, the, the, the heirs of the, the estate would be under a guardian, which would be a little bit like in uh, English uh, times, in, 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 in England, we, upper-class people might have a governor or a governess in an aristocratic home. And the role would be to keep the children safe, to teach them good manners, and to discipline them and correct them and prepare them for life as a grown-up when they would inherit the estate and represent the family in the world. That was the role of um, this, this guardian. They were a, a slave in an upper-class household that would care for these children, showing them how to live so that they're prepared as grown-ups to inherit the estate. And this guardian kept the children in line until they were mature and they graduated to be free and live as heirs of the family in the Roman world. The children in the family were in custody to this guardian. They, they couldn't just come and go as they pleased. They couldn't just do what they liked. They were locked up under the rule of this guardian. And the law performed the same function for God's Old Testament people. It showed them how to live for God, how to be made right with God, the importance of holiness, of being pure, of right worship and so on. And it did that by regulations. But it did this until God's people became grown-ups, which happened when Christ came. The law never functioned as a means to get us right with God, but it did point to Jesus. And so the Old Testament people who were under the law were looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come, and in putting their faith in that promise, they were justified. But now, as New Testament people, the law functions differently for us, Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit, and so now we live with God in us, as we were looking at this morning, without the need to be under a guardian anymore. We are grown-ups. We are mature. Now, I think an an illustration will help us to understand this, because most of us, I don't know all of your situations, but I don't think any of you probably had a governor. Um, I certainly, I I didn't, (laughs) but I did have a mother, or I do have a mother. And my mother, when I was a child, uh, helped me uh, to learn how to cook. Uh, My mum would tell me what was for tea. She would tell me what ingredients I had to put into whatever food I was making. 
She would tell me how they were mixed together. She would tell me what time tea was. She would even tell me who was going to be around the table. I was under her law in that way. She set the rules of how I was to be responsible for making the dinner. Do you see that? I was under her, her law in terms of my cookery. But when I've grown up, I don't throw away all of the cooking skills that I learned from my mum. Actually, it was more from my stepdad, but that's another story. But I don't throw all of those skills away. I don't, I don't no longer turn the hob on and think I can cook without heat. Or I don't no longer put salt and pepper in my food because, well, I don't need to do that anymore because that's just rubbish. Now, as a grown-up, I use the skills that I learnt from my mum, but I now am free to use those skills in all sorts of ways that I couldn't when I was under her law. I'm free now to bless others, including my mum herself. I can have whatever I want for tea now. Uh, I, I, I can try new ingredients. I can mix those ingredients however I feel I want to mix them. I can eat when I want, not when she tells me. I can have whoever I want round the table to be blessed by the food that I cook. I am free to use the blessing of cookery because I'm no longer under the law of my mum, even though I still use what I learnt when I was under that law. Do you see? The law is similar in this regard. We don't throw it away. We don't forget it or see it as pointless. But we look at it in a way that's different from when God's people were in the Old Testament. We look at it as what is expected from God's people, but as free people indwelt by the Spirit to live, not under its regulations. Now, some of the regulations we will continue with, just like the basics of cooking don't change because I've grown up, but I'm not under them in the same way that I was under my mother. I want to avoid sin Because I know that as Jesus says in John chapter 8, sin is slavery. Jesus sets us free. But I do that now as a free person under the power of the Spirit. So as I read the law, I read it differently. I read it in a way that, that because it's, I read it in a way that is fulfilled in Christ. As we read in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. So he doesn't throw it all away, but to fulfill them. So now we look at the law and we see how it's fulfilled in Christ. So when you read through Leviticus and you see all of those, that blood and gore and all those sacrifices, it, it points us to be able to celebrate the once and for all sacrifice that Jesus made. We don't go out and get a, a, a bull or a goat and sacrifice it in our back garden, do we? Or, or, or take it on a plane to Jerusalem. No, we, we, we read the law and we celebrate what Jesus has done for us in his sacrifice. The cleanliness laws point to how he cleanses us and how we are to be a, a distinctive people. The regulations display God's character that is unchanging, even if how we apply those regulations may differ from the Old Testament law. But we're now free. We're, we're led by the Spirit to live as, as God intends us to live. That doesn't mean we have no kind of discipline in our lives, that, that we just float along and, and hope God will show us how to live. 
Rather, the Spirit empowers us to apply the Word of God, including the Old Testament law, in a way which honors God in our lives. The proper use of the law is to see how it is fulfilled in Christ and then, empowered by the Holy Spirit, begin to live like Him. We're no longer under a guardian anymore. I appreciated growing up with my mum, but wouldn't it be odd and wrong for me to now phone her and ask her to set my menu and tell me what time tea is and ask her if I can have such and such round my house? I'm free from that. And I would argue a better cook. But I think the point here is not that the law was not bad, but life in the Spirit is better. Do you see? Life in the Spirit is better than it was under the law. I loved living at home with my mother, but I don't want to go back to being a child. I'm free as an adult to live in my house. And so the point that Paul is making to the Galatians is a key one. Don't go back. Don't go back. That's what he's saying. Don't go back. And when we think of it that way, we can apply that in all sorts of ways in our lives, can't we? Because we've all come from somewhere into God's kingdom, haven't we? Not all of us, uh, well, probably not many of us have come from a Jewish background where we were following the regulations of the law, but we've all come from somewhere. Some of us may have come from a a rules-based system. Some of us may have come from a do-as-you-like kind of lifestyle. Some of us may have come from idol worship of some kind. Some of us may have come from a, a catastrophe of living, of life. Whatever it may be you have come from, Paul's saying here, don't go back there. You're free now. You're free to live in Christ. And we'll see uh, as we go through Galatians more and more that we are no longer slaves to whatever it was that enslaved us before. We are now free as God's people. So don't go back because nothing you will go to will be better than following Jesus. It will only be infinitely worse. So don't go back. Whatever it is you're tempted to go back to, whether that be a a pattern of sin, a worldview or a way of thinking, whether that be a a legalistic, rules-based lifestyle, don't go back. We're free now. And we don't go back because, as we will see next week, we are no longer slaves, but we are God's children, free to live for his glory. What we're going to do uh, before we come to the Lord's table is is sing uh, of Jesus, the one whom all the scriptures point towards. And we're going to sing of his death in our place, that sacrifice that all of those Old Testament sacrifices pointed towards. Uh, Let's stand together before we come to the Lord's table and sing, I will sing of the Lamb.